Hello, I'm Pastor Marshall Oaks, and I'm the lead pastor at Red Hills Church in Tallahassee, Florida. And you're about to listen to a message from our Sunday morning gathering. If you enjoy what you hear, please leave us some feedback on iTunes. And if you really like what God is doing at our church, consider supporting the ministry work at redhillschurch.com give. Thanks, and now for some Bible teaching. Okay, are you guys ready? I realize as I edit the, the podcast every week, I always start with the word okay. <laughs> now you can't unhear that. <clears throat> it's my gift to you every week when I start, okay. So, okay. <laughs> Today we're in Hebrews chapter nine, but before we get into it, there has to be a little bit of background because Hebrews nine is connected to Hebrews eight, which is, obviously connected to the entire book, but the author is making a series of arguments in Hebrews 9 that began in Hebrew 8. All the way back from the beginning of the book, he's been making these arguments that Jesus is supreme over all things. He's supreme over angels, over Moses, over Joshua, over Levites, over law. And last week he got into the tabernacle. And he made this appeal that Jesus is superior to the tabernacle, the furniture, all of the regulations, all of the styles of worship, all of the law that went around how the Levites functioned. He made this argument from Exodus chapter 25, verses 8 and 9 last week. And in that chapter, Exodus 25, 8 through 9, he appeals to when God told Moses to build the tabernacle originally, he said, this tabernacle is based off of a pattern, implying that there is, original, there is an original somewhere else. So then in Hebrews 8, he proceeded to make an argument that since the tabernacle, the earthly temporal tabernacle, I'll show you some pictures of it in a minute, was nothing more than a shadow then it implies that there is a real thing somewhere else and the shadow shadowed in two ways. The tabernacle, the furniture, everything about the Levite worship structure was a shadow of a better covenant that was coming down the road and it was a shadow of a better temple that actually existed in heaven. Now we kind of touched on the idea that there is a tabernacle in heaven last week, but we spent most of our time talking about how the tabernacle and the furniture and all the worship was a shadow of the better covenant that would come in Christ. And just because there wasn't enough time, we, we just didn't get it to explore that as much as I would like to, but essentially what the author is inviting everyone to consider is how Christ is the fulfillment of the entire tabernacle. The old covenant pointed to the new covenant. When you look at Christ, the work of Christ can be seen in the brazen altar. He was the lamb that was slain. The work of Christ can be seen in the wash bowl because he washes away our, sea, our, our sins. The work of Christ can be seen in the candlestick, the furniture on the inside of the holy, of ho the holy place. He's the light uh, of the world. He's the one who sets us as a city on a hill. It's the work of the Holy Spirit being a light in us. He's the bread of life, like the table of showbread. The altar of incense, the Ark of the Covenant, the structure, the place, that, the, the, the idea that there is a place where we can run into that is full access. All of the tabernacle structure, it pointed to a better covenant in Christ. That was last week in Hebrews 8. Now in Hebrews 9, we're going to go to the other side of the shadow. 
the earthly tabernacle, all of its furniture, all of the regulations, the way that the Levites did worship, pointed to a better, greater tabernacle in heaven. That's where we're headed today. So, if you keep that in mind as we go through, he's gonna kind of deviate back and forth and make some arguments and then drift off and then come back, but the main point for Hebrews 9 is that the earthly tabernacle was a shadow of the heavenly tabernacle, and all of the work of the priests was nothing more than a point to Christ who did the ultimate work in heaven. Are you ready? I hope so, because we're about to start. I'm just kidding. Okay, go to Hebrews chapter 9. We're going to start in verse 1, and we're going to read through 5. We'll read a little bit, then stop and and talk a little bit. So 9 is a continuation of last week. Hebrews 9, 1 says this. Now, even the first covenant had regulations for worship and an earthly place of holiness. So he's establishing that there were processes, ways that worship was supposed to happen, sacrifices, daily things, weekly things, yearly things. For a tent was prepared, verse two, and the first section in which there was a lampstand and the table and the the bread of the presence, and this was called the holy place. And behind the second curtain was a second section called the most holy place, also referred to as the holy of holies, having the golden altar of incense and the ark of the covenant covered on all sides with gold. Now, if you're following, you just read that and you were like, what? Hold on a second. We'll get to that in a second. In which was a golden urn holding the manna and Aaron's staff that budded and the tablets of the commandments. What is he talking about? He's talking about the fact that when Moses finally, when Joshua led everybody into the promised land, the final things that ended up in the ark inside of an urn were Aaron's rod that budded, a jar of manna from the wilderness, and a copy of the covenant, the Ten Commandments. Above it, on the ark, the box itself, were cherubim, which are these angelic beings with these massive wings, of glory overshadowing the mercy seat. But of these things we cannot now speak in detail. He said that because he has a different point he wants to make. But let's pause right there. The author starts chapter nine making an argument that there was an earthly tabernacle structure with all these regulations, he'll get into the regulations in a minute, but he outlined the structure, and I wanna do that again this week. So if you put up the first slide, what you're looking at here is uh, a reproduction of the tabernacle that this author is talking about. This is the tabernacle of Moses. There was an outer structure, there was a front door, for the gate, and this entire outer structure here was called the outer court. Inside the outer court was the altar where the sacrifices were made and the laver where the priests washed themselves ceremonially before they went into the place of worship which is in here. Now, what you're looking at, this area, the outer court, any Israelite had access to. If you were a Jew, and, it was, and, and someone in your family sinned, or uh, maybe you were coming to make a grain offering because uh, you had an awesome harvest, or you're just being obedient, and you're bringing in a tent. You bring this stuff in, you, as the head of your house, you can come into the outer court. Everybody has full access here, and uh, a priest would come up. He would offer the sacrifices for you here on the altar, and they would be washed up, and then you would go about your day. But you never had access to anything further than that. That's as far as you could go. 
Now, if you go to the next slide, we're gonna do a cross section of that uh, tent that was in the last slide. Uh, we just kind of pulled back the top so you could see what was on the inside of it. On the inside of it, there are two rooms. It's called the holy place, that's in here, and the holy of holies here. And it's separated by this curtain. Inside the holy place, there was a table of showbread, lampstand, altar of incense. This room, was uh, weekly, uh, well daily, two times a day, it was visited by priests, but the priests were on a weekly cycle of coming in and managing the things in this room. So every week a priest would, would cast lots and someone would get voted to go in and manage the things in this room every day. Twice a day, they had to come in and all offer altar, uh, all, excuse me, offer incense on this altar so the room filled with smoke. His responsibilities also included making sure that the lamps had had enough oil so that the lights never went out, and also made sure that once a week, the bread on the table got changed. There were 12 loaves of bread, one for each tribe, symbolizing that there was always enough presence for God's people. But... This was a weekly uh, rotation, and the only people who could go in here was the priest who was on rotation, and there were so many priests that most priests only got to do this job once in their entire life. This is what Zechariah was doing when we read in Luke that he was visited by the angel. He was right here. No, altar of incense, right here. The angel appeared next to him. So Zechariah was on that rotation. Then there's the Holy of Holies. This is the room where the Ark of the Covenant sits on top of this box are the cherubim, and this room is only visited once a year by the high priest on the Day of Atonement. We'll get to that in a second, but there's an issue that we just discovered in the text. I hope you, anybody find it? Hebrews tells us that the altar of incense is in the Holy of Holies with the Ark of the Covenant. But Exodus 36 and verse, chapter 40, verse five, tells us that the altar of incense is in the holy place in here. So what's going on? We've got a couple options. First option, the author of Hebrews got it wrong. Your Bible's wrong. The author was wrong. Anybody wanna vote that one? Not me. There's no way that this guy who is so intimately acquainted with the entire structure of, like this dude is pulling stuff from Melchizedek. There's no way this guy got this wrong. So it's an option, but it's not a viable option. The second option is that in the second temple, you guys remember the story of the Israelites once the tabernacle moved on, Solomon built an entire temple and it was this model, but just bigified and there was more of everything. And they went into wickedness and Babylon came in and destroyed the tabernacle or the temple in 586 and eliminated all the furniture. After Babylon comes in and completely decimates and burns the tabernacle or the temple, there's no more reference to the Ark of the Covenant. It disappears until Harrison Ford found it. But it's gone, there's no more reference to it. In fact, when they return from Babylon and rebuild the second temple, there's no reference of an ark. Nobody knows where it is, it's gone. Meaning that during the second temple period, there was no ark in the Holy of Holies, which means at the time of Jesus, there was no ark in the Holy of Holies. 
Some scholars think that at that time, since there was no Ark of the Covenant, uh, will you put the second map back up? Since there was no Ark of the Covenant, they moved the altar of incense into the Holy of Holies since there was no Ark in there. Possible, I like it, not a bad theory. But there's another theory that ties that piece of furniture, the altar of incense, to the Day of Atonement, which is where the author goes next. The altar is connected to the Day of Atonement because there are regulations and rituals for worship in which the altar of incense on the Day of Atonement has to be cleansed because it's been used twice a day all year long. So on the Day of Atonement, when the blood is sacrificed and uh, the animal sacrifice of the blood is spread on the Ark of the Covenant, also on that day, blood is spread on the horns of the altar of incense. And some think that on the Day of Atonement, the altar of incense was actually moved into the Holy of Holies with the Ark of the Covenant because it became a part of this process of worship. But there's no way that it lived in this room on a daily basis because the priests had to come in and change the uh, incense on this altar twice a day, and, th- and no one was allowed in this room except for the high priest once a year. So that's how we reconcile that. Now, I said that the, alt- the, the author is about to get into some of the rituals on the Day of Atonement, so I gave you kind of a, a setup about some of the things that were happening in each of these rooms, but I want to go into detail about what the priest, the high priest would do on the Day of Atonement, but let's keep reading on verse 6. We'll go from 6 to 10. The author is trying to get us to wrap our heads around the magnitude of what was required in order to have access to God, even though you couldn't, as a normal run-of-the-mill Hebrew, actually have access to God. And he's gonna contrast that with the work of Christ. So verse six, he says, these preparations having thus been made, the priests go regularly into the first section performing their ritual duties. But into the second, only the high priest goes. This is the Holy of Holies. And he, but once a year, and not without taking blood, which he offers for himself and for the unintentional sins of the people. By this, the Holy Spirit indicates that the way into the holy place is not yet opened as long as the first section is still standing. Which is wild, because essentially what he's saying here is that not only is the tabernacle a shadow of a new covenant and the tabernacle a shadow of a better, uh, higher tabernacle in heaven, he's also saying that in another way, as long as the earthly tabernacle is still standing, the idea that the priests would have to go through the holy place to get to the holy of holies indicates that a current old covenant still stands. The idea that you would have to go through the worship process reminds us that the new covenant hasn't been fulfilled and the higher temple hasn't received the the, the great sacrifice yet. 
It's interesting the way he uses that. He's, he's, he's giving us this illustration saying it's for this and it's also for this. But in another way, it also tells us, he says in verse nine, which is symbolic of the present age. As long as the earthly tabernacle is still standing, there is in a way a pointing to the thing of the new covenant not being fulfilled and the heavenly thing not being achieved, which is one of the reasons why in God's mercy he allowed the temple to be destroyed by Rome in 70 AD. Because as long as it was still standing, it was a symbol that it was the old covenant. According to this arrangement, gifts and sacrifices are offered that cannot perfect the conscience of the worshiper, but deal only with food and drink and various washings, regulations for the body imposed until the time of reformation. Not the Protestant reformation. Hey, I got, I got one, one laugh out of that one. All right, now, it's easy to lose the argument, as I said at the beginning here, but the, the argument that the author is making in nine is that the tabernacle is a shadow of a greater temple in heaven. That's the whole point here. This thing points to this thing. Now, he starts getting into the weeds a little bit when he starts talking about the sacrifices of this thing, but the whole point he does this is to, to, to set up the argument moving forward about what Christ did in the new covenant to fulfill the higher tabernacle. So what he does is he goes through and he highlights the things that the high priests did. I told you that daily they would come in and make sacrifices. Weekly, they would be on rotation as priests to come in and uh, manage the, um, the, the lampstand and the, the table of showbread and the altar Vincent, but there was this day once a year when the high priest would go into the Holy of Holies and offer sacrifices to cover the sins of the people for the whole year. Now, if you want some homework reading, this is Leviticus 16. Go home and read Leviticus 16. It's riveting. Thorough instructions for what the high priest had to go through in order for to cover the sins of the people for the year. I'm gonna give you just a, a, an abridged version so you can get um, an appreciation for what this high priest did once a year. The first thing the priest had to do was completely clothe, uh, would completely wash himself, get completely ceremonially clean, and take off the normal high priest robes and put on this white linen outfit. The next thing he had to do was select a bull and the bull's job was to cover the sin of the high priest. He had to make a sacrifice for his own sins before he was worthy to come before the Lord and make a sacrifice for the sins of the people. So the first thing he would do is he would select this oxen, he would put his hands on it, he would slaughter it, he would make the sacrifice. It was a very bloody process. This white garment wasn't white for very long. He took the blood of the bull he walked past the holy place into the holy of holies and he was instructed to take the blood of this oxen and smear it on the mercy seat. What is the mercy seat? The mercy seat is the point above the Ark of the Covenant where those two cherubim, their angels, reach and touch right here. That one point is the spot on earth where God's presence rested among his people. And that place had to be cleansed from sin. So the high priest wasn't done. Once he made that sacrifice and spread the blood of the ox to cover his own sin, he would leave the Holy of Holies, go back out to the altar, and he would have uh, uh, the, the next process uh, in the order of worship. The next process is to select two goats. 
So two goats would be brought before him and they would cast lots over these goats to find out which goat would be sacrificed and which one would be set free. Now I want you to start wrapping your head around the worship practices that were birthed at Sinai in light of the Christ event. Two goats were brought forward and lots were cast to select which one would be sacrificed and which one would be set free. One of these goats would be designated for Yahweh and one of these goats would be designated according to Exodus, or according to Leviticus, um, for Azazel. Now there's all kinds of fun things you could do about who Azazel was, but Azazel in Hebrew essentially means scapegoat. That's where that term comes from. So the priest would then take the goat who was designated for Yahweh, lay his hands on it, he would sacrifice it, he would take the blood from the goat, he would bring it into the Holy of Holies, and he would take the blood from the goat and smear it on the mercy seat as a covering for the sins of the people for that year. He wasn't done, he would leave, the Holy of Holies, he would come back out, he would take the blood from the goat, the the blood from the bull that he sacrificed first, he would mix that, he would then mix it with some of the ashes from the altar, he would bring that mixture in, He he would come right before the altar of incense and he would take that mixture and he would cleanse the horns of the altar of incense that had been used the entire year to cleanse uh, to, to cleanse that piece of furniture. Wasn't done. He would leave the holy place. He would then go to that other goat. He would place his hands on that goat. He would pray a prayer that would essentially transfer the sins of the people onto the goat, and then the goat would be set free out into the wilderness. The routines that the author of Hebrews is outlining is designed to teach the people a few things. And it wasn't the things that most of the people thought that the routines were teaching them. The people saw the routines and took comfort in the routines and eventually began to think that the routines saved them. That there was comfort in the rituals There was comfort in the gathering. There was comfort in the sacrifice that I could bring to the Lord. But the author of Hebrews exposes the limitations of this process. The idea that there were three different areas in the place of worship reveals that access to God under this covenant was highly restricted. You couldn't get close to God. Someone had to do that on your behalf. It also highlighted that forgiveness was restricted. I don't know if you caught this or not, but in verse seven, this process covered the unintentional sins of the people, not premeditated sins. In fact, premeditated sins in Numbers 15.30 are called high-handed sins. Sins that you start with a high hand. You intended to do this. It was premeditated for you to do this, which puts David in a really tough spot when he realizes what he's done with Bathsheba because it was premeditated. 
and there's no way to cover that sin in this covenant. So what does David do? Well, we find out what he does in Psalm 51. He throws himself on the mercies of the Lord and he says, sacrifices, I know you never wanted them anyway. What you really wanted was a humble heart and there's no provision to cover what I did, but I'm throwing myself on your mercy, please. And God's like, yeah. Now you're starting to get somewhere. This guy gets it. But it also reveals that the cleanliness, the covering of sin was restricted. The conscience of the worshiper wasn't cleansed. All of this stuff dealt with food and drink and washings and regulations imposed on the outside of the body, but it couldn't cleanse the conscience of the worshiper. In short, this entire system could never accomplish what was needed, and that's why the author of Hebrews is telling us that it was a shadow of something higher. Let's go to verse 11. The author now transitions into that greater thing that was higher. Verse 11 says, but when Christ appeared as a high priest of the good things that have come, then through the greater and more perfect tent, not made with hands, that is not of this creation, he's speaking of the temple in heaven, he entered once for all into the holy places. Not the copy of the holy places that a man made, but the real holy places. Not by means of the blood of goats and calves, but by means of his own blood, thus securing eternal redemption. For the blood of goats and bulls and the sprinkling of defiled persons with the ashes of a heifer sanctify for the purification of the flesh, how much more will the blood of Christ, who through the eternal spirit offered himself without blemish to God, purify our conscience from dead works to, res- dead works to serve the living God. Therefore, He is the mediator of a new covenant so that those who are called may receive the promised eternal inheritance since a death has occurred that redeems them from the transgressions committed under the first covenant. Whoa, so now we're talking about this sacrifice being so sufficient, it didn't just cover all the sins that would move forward after the Christ event, it covered all the sins that were uh, looked over by the Lord in the previous old covenant that couldn't be covered. For where a will is involved, the death of the one who made it must be established. For a will takes effect only at death, since it is not enforced as long as the one who made it is alive. Therefore, not even the first covenant was inaugurated without blood. For when every commandment of the law had been declared by Moses to all people, he took the blood of calves and goats with water, scarlet wool, and hyssop, and he sprinkled both the book itself and the people saying this is the blood of the covenant that God has commanded for you. He's talking about the moment that, he's, that Moses came down off of the mountain and he said, he read the law to the people and they said, all right, we agree to it. He made a sacrifice and he spread the blood on the people to affirm the covenant because you can't have a covenant without bloodshed. You can't have a will without bloodshed. We'll go to that in a second. And in the same way, he sprinkled the blood both on the tent and the vessels used in worship. That didn't happen at that moment because the vessels in the temple hadn't been built yet. So he's referencing not just the moment of Sinai, but he's referencing a further moment when Moses spread blood on the tabernacle after it was built to confirm the fact that there was indeed a covenant. Indeed, under the law, almost everything is purified with blood. There's blood everywhere. 
And without the shedding of blood, there is no forgiveness of sins. So the author now transitions to this greater place of worship and he outlines what the tabernacle was in light of this Christ event. It was nothing more than Lego instructions. It wasn't the real set. Could you imagine buying your kid a box of Legos and they open up the instructions and for four hours they're just sitting over there going, man, isn't this beautiful? Look at, yeah. Dad, there's 900 steps. What's 400? Oh, I want to see it again. Dude, put the thing together. The set is better than the instructions. The instructions point to a better thing, and once the better thing is here, you don't need the instructions. This is what the author is arguing. This earthly tabernacle, this earthly tabernacle outlined what needed to take place. It functioned as nothing more than a guide, and the function was for the guide to be the great high priest to take what was temporary here and make eternal in heaven, and that was Christ. So Christ fulfilled all of the previous regulations, but it wasn't in the earthly temple. Christ made the sacrifices in the true temple. Christ didn't use the blood of goats and bulls and calves. He used his own blood, which was perfect. And Christ didn't need to do it yearly He did it once for all. And then the author zeroes in on this need for blood for the whole process. Why is there so much blood? Why is there blood everywhere? Well, he uses the word covenant and will interchangeably to drive home this argument. And the reason why he does this is because in Greek, the word will and covenant are the same word. And so he uses the same word in different meanings to drive home a meaning. He he essentially says the word covenant can be interchangeable with will because in the same way that blood had to be shed to establish the covenant, you understand how a will takes place? A will doesn't take effect until someone dies, until there's bloodshed. So the work of Christ was required to not only cover sins in the covenant, but also was required for you to inherit the eternal kingdom. See, we spend a lot of time in church talking about how, oh, our sins have been forgiven. But we don't spend a whole lot of talking about what we have inherited in the kingdom of God. We're his children now, we're part of his family. The best days are not just ahead of us, they're after we die. Wrap your head around the great fear of mankind is death. It doesn't matter what you do, there's an expiration date on it. It doesn't matter what you've accomplished, one day you won't have it and you can't take it with you. Well, it doesn't matter because we're told as believers that there is better stuff after we die. It doesn't matter what you accomplish, on your best day, it doesn't even compare to what we have inherited once you die. Death is the great doorway. It's not something to be feared, it's something to be looking forward to because we not only get to meet our king, but we also get to see our loved ones again, and we also get to spend eternity not suffering. Good deal. But then he ends on verse 22, he says, you can't have forgiveness of sin without blood and death. And this speaks to us why Christ had to die for our sins. See, 
the wages of sin is death. Meaning that when you sin, in order to cover that sin, something has to die. And under the old covenant, an animal died. An animal took your place. That was the whole point of the two goats. There's sin, and something's got to die to cover it. And when something dies to cover it, that means the other thing is then set free. You can't get away from this. This is just the way it is. You're like, well, that doesn't seem fair. Well, you didn't invent the world. You didn't create everything we see, so you don't set the rules. There was a scene from the Chronicles of Narnia many, many years ago where the witch and Aslan are having this argument and the witch is trying to one-up Aslan about the rules and he looks at her and he says, don't cite the deep magic to me, witch. I was there when it was written. Look, you're not gonna get to cite the deep magic to the Lord about the way you think things should go. He, was, he, he wrote it. You weren't there when it was written. All of these regulations and the way that mankind can be right before a holy God has nothing to do with what you think it should be. Well, there's gotta be a different way. Why all the death? Why all the bloodshed? Because this is the way he determined it. The wages of sin is death, and when you sin, death is required. So you either, under the old covenant, find an animal to die in your place, but that doesn't cover it permanently. You gotta do it again and again and again, or you find a righteous person to die in your place. Folks, this is why Jesus had to die. Because the Father required death for sin. And every one of you in here, the reason why Jesus had to die is because of your desire to gossip. The reason why Christ had to shed his blood is because you can't stop looking at pornography. The reason why Christ died is because of that addiction that you have or that hatred that you live in your that you let live in your or 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 the unforgiveness that you lit, let live rent free in the back of your mind that's why Christ had to die because it's sin and it's got to be atoned for but i got good news he did it he died for your sin he covered it let's finish this chapter go to verse 23 He says, and thus it was necessary for the copies of the heavenly things to be purified with these rites, but the heavenly things themselves with better sacrifices than these. What is he saying? The earthly thing was a shadow of the heavenly thing, and the heavenly thing had to be covered with the good stuff, not temporary stuff. For Christ has entered not into the holy places made with hands, which are copies of the true things, but into heaven itself now to appear in the presence of God on our behalf, nor was it to offer himself repeatedly as the high priest enters the holy place every single year with blood not of his own, for then he would have to suffer repeatedly since the foundation of the world. But as it is, he has appeared once for all at the end of the ages to put away sin by the sacrifice of himself. To put away sin Permanently. 
by the sacrifice of himself. And just as it is appointed for man to die once, and after that comes judgment, so Christ, having been offered once to bear the sins of many, will appear a second time, but not to deal with sin, not to come back and be sacrificed again, and slaughtered again, and rise again, to spread his blood on the mercy seat again. No, when he comes again, he will come to save those who are eagerly waiting for him. So how is the earthly tabernacle a shadow of the heavenly tabernacle? Well, the tent, the furniture, the routine spoke of a better tent, furniture, and routine. All of this structure we've been talking about for the last two chapters, the furniture, the routines, the outfits, the garments, the different priests, the the bread, the light, all of it, all of it had one job, and that is to reveal the glorious plan of Jesus Christ doing this thing on our behalf. Now, as I read through Hebrews 9, usually at the end of every chapter when we're studying the message, I try to find a way to shape the text in such a way that it creates a tension inside of us that we've got to then resolve and there's, there's things that, we, there's a way we've got to respond, but today's different. Hebrews nine is not the kind of chapter where you walk away saying, okay, I got to do some things different. Hebrews nine is the kind of chapter where you just sit and you stare. Now, what do I mean by that? I mean that Hebrews nine has told us that there are no more shadows, that all the temporary coverings and living in guilt is over. That the restriction to God through this tabernacle process has ended, we have full access now, and all the furniture, rituals, and everything about the tabernacle and Levitical structure has been fulfilled in the person of Jesus. We are told in this chapter that Jesus died in our place to cover our sins and cover our guilt and his his blood has opened the holy of holies, granting you full access to God. The only thing that can be done is to behold this text and let it wreck you. Because here's the truth. The author of this book, this chapter, this book, was a very analytical mind. I imagine talking to him would have been like talking to a lawyer. You spend 40 minutes discussing what a word means. Well, you said that word. What is the definition of that word? 40 minutes later, we can move on to the next sentence. The entire book is like this. It's a very analytical mind, but when you read this analytical mind that has been completely wrecked by Jesus, you start understanding the invitation that the Holy Spirit is giving us today. Do you wanna be wrecked like this guy was wrecked? Do you wanna fully know that all of your sins have been covered and washed away and you can stop wrestling with that guilt today? that you don't have to leave here with the guilt you walked in with? Man, just think about the guilt you've been carrying around, the conscience 
that hasn't been settled. Even though you say that you've accepted Christ, you're still functioning under the old covenant. You're pretending like it was a sacrifice that didn't cover everything, and you're still walking around with the dread of the way you raised your kids. You wish you would have done it better. You're walking around with the guilt that you should have said something before that person passed away and now that's on your shoulders and you just can't let it go. Or you made a decision when you were 18 that you has changed the course of your life and even today you still let that one event that happened 40 years ago create your identity for you. It's who you are. That's what I'm talking about. I'm talking about the way that our guilt has not been appeased by the blood of Christ. Your conscience isn't cleared, and the writer of Hebrews is saying, it can be. This is why he shed his blood. This is why he did away with the entire system and fulfilled the real system in heaven so that you can stop wringing your hands and worrying about what happened in the past and start moving forward in the freedom and the guilt-free life that he is offering for you. So here's the invitation today, come. Come and stare at that bloody cross and know that that was for you. Come and behold the wonder of the God who put on human flesh and let his own creation beat him to the point where you couldn't even recognize him, nail him to a tree, and then bury his dead body in a borrowed tomb. Behold what that man has done on your behalf. Let it sink in, let it get deep in your bones because if there is anything in your bones other than the raw joy of the sacrifice that Christ has given on your behalf, you're wasting your time. You're living powerless. What, what am I saying? I'm saying that Hebrews 9 is the gospel. It is the good news of Jesus that something had to die because of your wickedness, because of your disobedience. And I don't just mean the disobedience that you asked for forgiveness from when you were 10 and you got saved. I'm talking about the wickedness that runs through your mind even today. The areas that have not been conquered with the blood of Christ. I'm not talking about salvation, I'm talking about sanctification. I'm talking about transformation. You have said yes to him and drew a line in the sand and say, but you can't have any of my life. I'm gonna hold on to these things. I'll give you this stuff, but not this stuff. I'm gonna keep holding on to this stuff. Hebrews 9 says there's no, that's not a way to look at the sacrifice that Christ has for you. It's all or nothing. You either open the door or he's gonna kick it in. So today, church, come and behold the Jesus who shed his own blood to cover your sins. Let's pray. Hello again, it's Pastor Marshall, and I just wanted to say thank you for listening to this message. If you want to hear other messages or maybe find out more about our church, you can visit redhillschurch.com. From there, you'll find links to our social media pages, message archive, and ways you can support the ministry work. Thanks again for spending time with us, and God bless.